You're listening to The Bible for Normal People, the only God-ordained podcast on the internet. Serious talk about the sacred book. I'm Pete Enns. And I'm Jared Bias. Everybody, welcome to this episode of the podcast. And our topic today is the Gospel of Matthew on integrity and hypocrisy. Yeah, that's an interesting title because I would say that's something I learned about the Gospel of Matthew. Exactly, right. That's like a big thing that we both learned about what's going on in this Gospel. And our guest is Judy Stack. Judy Stack, uh, she's a PhD from Princeton Theological Seminary, has taught at many places and taught Mm. us. She took us to school. Yeah. I mean, she's taught undergraduate and seminary level, and she's a real good New Testament scholar. And she really learned to love the Gospel of Matthew because she hated it. Is that a good? I mean, she yeah. she struggled she was curious, with it. Though. She was struggled with it, yeah. and she was curious, and she and she learned she a lot. She was bothered. I don't know if she hated. She was bothered I know, by. She it. didn't hate it. She was I bothered. Just, by I exaggerate. It. But but I think that's an important point to make because there's a big distinction between hating something and being bothered by it. And I think a lot of what we do with the podcast here is saying, yeah, there's a lot of the Bible we should be bothered by, mm-hmm. and that you know can lead you to kind of throw it in the garbage or maybe be curious and see why it's there and what's troubling about it and maybe what have we misunderstood and some yeah and something exactly that's a big thing some things we may have misunderstood because if you dig in you might see i was making like really dumb assumptions about this yeah and i was like no matthew's not doing that at all he's doing something else like oh well boy that turns a few lights on in my head that's really interesting to talk about so yeah yeah. all right good well let's have the conversation then with uh judy stack When you start to read through the Gospel of Matthew, you see all kinds of stuff about the wheat and the tares, right? What's the problem with the tares or the weeds? That particular kind of weed looks just like wheat until it's supposed to produce grain. Things may look good, but it's not until the end that God and only God can go in and discern the wheat from the weeds. Well, it's that time, folks. It's time for us to talk about microdosing. Microdose gummies deliver perfect entry-level doses of THC that help you feel just the right amount of good. Microdosing can help you get into a relaxed, focused zone easier and stay there longer. It has benefits for workout recovery, sleep, anxiety relief, boosting creativity, and even pain relief. You know, Jared, I have a really good friend of mine who saw that I was taking microdose gummies and She said, can I try some? And so I gave her some of the sativa strand and she said it has made such a difference for her at work and just in general, just feeling more alert and more focused. And it's quite amazing. So get 30% off your first order plus free shipping today at microdose.com. Promo code normal people. That's one word. It's available nationwide. That's microdose.com. Promo code normal people for 30% off and free shipping. Microdose.com. Promo code normal people. Well, welcome, Judy, to the podcast. It's great to be here. This is going to be fun. It better be. <laughs> That's so, all I can say, Judy. Well, yeah, or I'll never be asked. Don't that. screw this up. Yeah, okay? no pressure. Right. No pressure. Uh, oh, well. This is the first time for everything. <laughs> and, and, a, and a last time. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, Judy, we want to begin. We really want to get into the Gospel of Matthew. But before we do that, just learn a little bit about you and how did you become interested in studying the Bible or the New Testament specifically for a living? How did that come about? Sure. You know, I never intended to end up here. Who does really, right? My undergrad major was actually English, and I had a lot of interest in philosophy and theology, but I was really interested in literature. 
I'm going to date myself here and uh, say that this was the mid-80s when literary criticism was uh, and literary theory was really kind of coming to the fore. And so one of the things that ended up putting me on the track that I ended up on was I was taking at the same time as an undergraduate in the same semester, a course on short story writing and also a course on the Gospels. And what I found fascinating was how what I was learning about the Gospels, and particularly the Gospel of Mark, because that was the, the emphasis of the course. And also the shortest Gospel. Yeah. <laughs> short story. Anyway, go ahead. Exactly. Exactly. It's really a novella. But what I was learning about in, in the short story course had all kinds of applicability to the Gospel of Mark. And I found this really fascinating. So I ended up doing my senior honors thesis on the Gospel of Mark as literature, which was kind of a, a hot topic back then, and really enjoyed that, but still thought that my trajectory was toward literature. And um, so I was planning on getting a PhD in English. But I realized, even young as I was, that starting a PhD program was kind of like stepping on a bullet train. You don't just have the opportunity to sort of get off at different stations and wander about. And so I thought, well, before I get on that bullet train, I'd kind of like to learn a little bit about theology and church history and, and maybe learn uh, New Testament Greek because I, I got curious about that. So I said, well, I'm going to go to seminary for a year and just sort of scratch that itch, and then I'll start a PhD in literature. Famous last words. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> One year turned into two years uh, because I realized, well, I could stay here a second year and get an MA. And so while I was there, what I kind of realized was that the New Testament was a really interesting nexus of a whole bunch of things I was interested in. Philosophy, particularly ancient philosophy, literary theory in the guise of biblical hermeneutics, which is the, the way that we approach how we understand the biblical texts, how do we interpret them, how do we make meaning out of them, and history and theology. And so I was like, wow, actually, maybe I should study the New Testament. And eventually, I did end up getting my PhD. I took a little hiatus in there and did the mommy track for about a dozen years and then uh, eventually went back. The thing that got me going with the Gospel of Matthew uh, was actually during those seminary years before I started my PhD, not during coursework, but just during my own reading of the Gospel of Matthew, uh, I became very troubled. I will just say it straight up troubled by what I was reading in the Gospel of Matthew. And it wasn't like I had never read Matthew before, but I was starting to actually read these texts and, and not just sort of get something spiritual and devotional out of them, but actually think about what's the message here and how does it fit together with the thing in the chapter before and and how is this all fitting together into and what's the theological import of of all this and i realized holy cow matthew is a really scary gospel there are people in these parables getting thrown into outer darkness with weeping and gnashing of teeth because they didn't do the right thing and you know, I, I, I grew up Lutheran, and I was at a Lutheran seminary, and boy, I tell you, all that salvation by grace through faith, uh, I was having a really hard time finding that in Matthew. Hmm. 
So I ended up doing my master's thesis on judgment parables in Matthew because this got stuck in my craw. But I realized that I was going to need to dig into this deeper to really make sense of what was going on in Matthew. And just for my own personal life, how was I going to keep Matthew in my canon and not just bracket it and say, well, you know, I don't agree with that. And I'm not going to, that's not going to be normative for me. That's, you know, whatever. I'm just going to read Paul over here with all the other Lutherans. <laughs> and, so, um, and, and when, when Matthew talks about, you know, separating sheep and goats, I'll just go la, 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 la. And, but, you know, I just couldn't do that. Yeah. So the only way I was going to be able to work through this was to basically go to graduate school and just think about nothing but Matthew. To go right through and not avoid, but to go right through it. Go right through and just, how could I, I needed to dig down deep enough to make sense of what he was up to. Well, you know, one of the many things you're saying here, Judy, is just, this is a very interesting and compelling and maybe even common story for people like you, you know, who who just think about stuff and they want to get more in depth, but it's really, it's a close reading of the text that caused this uh-oh moment. And he said, I, I, I've got a choice here. I can either just forget it or make believe or just pass through and just go forward. And you decided to go forward. I don't know if that's, if that's just my own personal stubbornness or what, but, uh, but, I, but the thing I discovered was that Matthew was kind of an underappreciated and also uh, it was a gospel about which people were not asking very interesting questions. <laughs> <laughs> you mean people studying it? Yes, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, oh, uh, folks in churches had all kinds of interesting questions to ask about Matthew, but <laughs> scholars had kind of gotten stuck in these various cul-de-sacs that I, I just didn't find all that interesting. And so... Well, wh- why don't we, let's dive into that. You mentioned things that were underappreciated or questions that weren't being asked. What were some of those things? Well, you know, one of the things that really became kind of a, a revelation for me, and this is, uh, there's a little pun there, which will become apparent in a moment, <laughs> is how thoroughly apocalyptic Matthew is. And I mean, we think of a book like the book of Revelation, which is the apocalypse, and some other texts in the New Testament or parts of texts of the New Testament that we think of as apocalyptic. And by that, I mean, thinking about the end of the world and Jesus coming and how Jesus is an agent of God to bring about God's kingdom on earth. That's that's kind of apocalypticism in a nutshell, right? Well, can can we, I want to jump in there because you mentioned there is the I think there's a popular notion of apocalyptic. You said the end of the world, and we think of like everyone dying and wars and famines. And then you said that Jesus is an agent of God to bring about the kingdom of God. How do those things, how, how do those things interact in apocalyptic literature here? Right. And so there's a whole body of literature in, in the time leading up to the New Testament and also including many parts of the New Testament and in some ways the whole New Testament that are really interested in what God is up to, to bring about the world being the way God wants it to be. 
And some earlier literatures, especially the Old Testament, and Pete, you can just jump in whenever here, seem to conceptualize God's bringing about the world being the way God wants it to be as a sort of progressive historical movement that can happen incrementally. But eventually, folks thinking about this, Jewish folks, people in the the era uh, after the reestablishment of Israel and the rebuilding of the temple, start to seem to think, you know what, if God's will is ever going to truly be done on earth, God's going to have to intervene in some kind of really dramatic way. Like, we're just never going to get there step by step. God's going to have to do something dramatic to remake the world the way God wants it to be. And so all kinds of ideas start percolating, and there's all kinds of writings that are created, which most of which don't end up in our canonical scriptures. Uh, And usually there's some sort of sense that when God comes to establish God's reign on the earth, that is, God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven, as it says in the Lord's Prayer. When that happens, the world is just going to have to be so fundamentally remade that there is going to be a lot of upheaval. And so there's going to be natural upheaval. There are going to be kingdoms being torn down and new things built up. And so when we think of apocalyptic, we usually think of that little piece of this much larger story, but that sort of the incompatibility of the world the way it is now with how God intends it to be. So Judy, just to clarify something, a lot of the imagery used in apocalyptic literature, like Book of Revelation and other places, it uses like the imagery of physical destruction or something Mm -hmm. like that. But that is just... That's not literal, right? That's that's imagery to get a point, get across the point that I think you're making. Is that fair yes. to say? Okay. Yeah. So don't take that stuff literally. It's an image that meant to say there's a big upheaval coming and God's going to do it. Yeah. Okay. And when we have something like a new heaven and a new earth, you know, what is that going to look like? And so really, I think all the Gospels and also Paul are grappling with this question of how is Jesus essential to this establishment of what's usually called the kingdom of God? We have lots of parables about the kingdom of God, right? The kingdom of God is like whatever. And so thinking through then how Jesus is God's agent to bring that about is sort of the essential premise of of Christian belief, that God did something in the person of Jesus that has brought about at least the beginnings of this reign of God. But this has been, I think, with regard to the Gospel of Matthew, has been kind of underappreciated because Jesus there is presented so much as a teacher, And Matthew has much more of Jesus' teaching, giving parables in controversies, doing the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus' teaching is a big theme in this gospel, and that has, I think, kind of obscured the fact that even though Jesus is definitely a teacher, Jesus is, for Matthew, also this 
Messiah, this Christ, this agent of God who is going to bring about God's reign. And that there are some aspects of that that are not going to be comfortable for everybody. Yeah, what would be some of the, you know, what distinguishes, Matt, you call Matthew kind of a, a little bit of a scarier, the the imagery a little bit more severe than maybe the other Gospels that could, you said, also participates in this apocalyptic uh, just culture. I think it's just kind of in the air at the time. So what makes Matthew distinct in that? What kind of images show up there that maybe don't show up other places? Well, one of the things that's interesting is many of the parables that are unique to Matthew are parables of judgment. And mostly folks do not get real excited about the prospect of judgment. I know I don't. <laughs> um, uh, when, you, when you sit down to do a Bible study with, with folks, um, nobody's like, hey, can we talk about God's judgment? Well, maybe they are, but I, I, I don't like having Bible studies with those folks. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I've known a few of them, and, and I'm not, they're not much fun. But mostly people are really disturbed by these parables of judgment in Matthew. And I was, obviously. This, is, this was part of the, the burr under my saddle. But one of the things that I, I found so interesting about Matthew is that for Matthew, this definitely seems to be part of the good news right? If Jesus comes to preach good news, part of the good news is God's judgment. And we're like, hmm, well, doesn't sound like good news to me. But what's interesting, as, as I delved into it, I was really trying to understand how righteousness versus unrighteousness functions in Matthew, because that's, of course, that's what people are judged on, right? In these parables. And I have to give a shout out to one of the greats of the previous generation of New Testament scholarship, Leander Keck, hmm. who came and gave some lectures at the school where I was um, doing my doctoral work. And he did a lecture on righteousness in Matthew. He didn't have all the answers, which I discovered later on because I... <laughs> I cornered him and said, I have some questions, <laughs> to which he said, I do not have those answers. But the thing that he said that got me on a really fruitful track was, if we want to understand righteousness in Matthew, a helpful way to get at that may be to look at who does Matthew portray as the opposite of that. If you have righteous disciples and people who enter the kingdom of God, what does it mean to be not that? And of course, in Matthew, the bad guys, the, the mustache-twirling <laughs> evil villains of the Gospel of Matthew are the Pharisees, right? I thought you were going to say Calvinists. <laughs> I, I must uh, have misread that. I'm sorry. Yeah, just, yeah, no, I think you're I, projecting, and I, Pete. <laughs> and I'm not, I'm not going to make a connection between those two. Not going to do it. No, sir. <laughs> it's a trap. It's a hey, trap, Pete, Pete, I'm just kidding, people. All you Calvinists out there, God loves you anyway. Don't worry about it. Okay. No judgment for you. Go ahead. Because you're elect. Don't worry about it. Um, and if you weren't, nothing you could do anyway. So, <laughs> there you go. That's such a nerdy, like, nerdy minute of this podcast. I know. Not a lot of people are <laughs> like, I think Judy just lost her train of thought completely. <laughs> Thanks to me. Just amusing ourselves over here. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants? and over 2 million happy customers in the U.S.? 
They have everything you could possibly want, like fruit trees, palm trees, evergreens, houseplants, and so much more. Whatever you're interested in, they have it for you. Find the perfect fit for your climate and space. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online, and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with that, their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee is amazing. They offer free plant consultation forever. We got our bushes in, and you can tell I don't know what I'm talking about because I just call them bushes. But we got them in last night. And Fast Growing Trees knows what they're called. Exactly. That's the whole point. It comes with this placard that tells you exactly what to do like you were in fifth grade, which is the exact instruction <laughs> level that I needed. And it was very easy to follow. We love the process. This spring, they have their best deals online up to half off on select plants and other deals. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. FastGrowingTrees.com code NORMALPEOPLE. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. A calling is a powerful thing. It's a very strong belief that there is something bigger for you. It's about who you are and where you're going in life. You may be in college, you may be halfway through a career, but you want something different. There's a place for you at Union Presbyterian Seminary, where students are prepared for a call to ministry. At Union, you will find a diverse community. You'll find students from different denominations and professors who will listen to you and challenge you. You'll find people who help you find your own path. You'll find a school where financial realities matter. Union offers generous financial aid, and it meets you where you are with three different platforms for learning, residential, online, and hybrid. You'll find a world-class faculty who will invest in you, a community long after you graduate that supports you and equips you for service and for leadership. Safwat Marzuk, who has been on the podcast here on The Bible for All People, is a faculty at Union Presbyterian Seminary and is slated to write one of our upcoming commentaries. It's no secret, if you're a listener of the podcast, how much Pete and I have relied on our seminary education and how much that has shaped our view of the world and all of our work here at The Bible for Normal People. It's your call. Respond with Union Presbyterian Seminary. To learn more, go to upsem.edu or email admissions at upsem.edu. But so <laughs> back to the real topic. The Pharisees are the bad guys. Pharisee, the Pharisees are the bad guys. So, and what is the defining characteristic of the Pharisees? Anybody? Um, they're bad people. They're bad people. They're hypocrites. They're hypocrites. Mm. That's what Jesus condemns them for over and over and over again. So, if the thing that constitutes being the opposite of what you're supposed to be is hypocrisy, the thing that is really the core of righteousness for Matthew is integrity. And when that was the light bulb that made it all make sense, because then the judgment parables, they're not about, you know, God's going to get you if you don't do the right thing. It's all about God's going to reveal who has been a person of integrity and who has not. And that's, I mean, apocalyptic means what? And it's, it's Greek. Right. So yeah, it, it means revelation right. to reveal. Yeah, not to destroy the world. It's not a video game. No, it literally means. Yeah. Well, I and I love that. I love etymologies when they work. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but but yeah, apocalypsis means an mm -hmm. unveiling. Mm -hmm. It's pulling back that curtain to what's reality and the spiritual reality beyond what we might see 
here with our natural mm-hmm. eyes. So it's it's showing what was true all along. It's showing what was true all along. And so when you start to read through the Gospel of Matthew with that, you see all kinds of stuff about wolves in sheep's clothing, wheat and the tares, right? What's the problem with the tares or the weeds is the, the more modern translation of that. The weeds, that particular kind of weed, looks just like wheat until it's supposed to produce grain. And so there's this, you know, things may look good, but it's not until the end that God and only God can go in and discern the wheat from the weeds. That's actually fascinating because I would have I would have been taught that that was like such a fear-based parable that you actually don't know if you're right you don't now. know until the end whether you're getting in or not. <laughs> and you just kind of flip that on its head around no it's it's just revealing what's been true all along whether you were hypocritical or whether you were people of integrity. Yeah. I feel better. Yeah. <laughs> This well, is better Jared, than therapy, you know. <laughs> you know, if you feel better, Jared, I, you know, it was all worthwhile. Indeed. We just want you to be comfortable. <laughs> yeah, that's a, yeah, Pete tells me that all the time. I know. That's what he's about. <laughs> anyway, so once I kind of got that, a whole bunch of things fell into place and and you know, the the center of the gospel of Matthew is really chapter 13, not numerically cuz, you know, but Matthew structurally has five long discourses. You have the Sermon on the Mount in uh, chapters five through seven. You've got the missionary discourse in chapter 10. You've got the parables discourse in chapter 13. Then you've got the sort of church life discourse in 17 and 18. And then you've got the apocalyptic discourse in 24 and 25, 23, if you want to throw in the the condemnation of the Pharisees on that. But as a structuring element, what's the first discourse? It's the Sermon on the Mount, which is all about the kingdom, right? The ending discourse is about the actual apocalyptic coming of the kingdom. It's about end times. And the middle of it is these parables of judgment. And so Matthew is thoroughly up down around in its structure and in its content it's about how god's going to come and reveal what's true hi everyone my name is scott and i'm from woodby island washington and i'm part of the producers group here at the bible for normal people what i really enjoy about this podcast are the wide views deep research and the desire to make the bible understandable for everyday people like myself If you have gotten something from this podcast like I have, I want to take a moment and mention to you how you can support Pete and Jared in their work. This podcast is brought to you by supporters on the Patreon platform. For as little as $1 a month, you can be part of the group that brings this podcast to normal people everywhere. As a gift for your support, we have book studies, chat groups, and lots of great videos from Pete and Jared. So check it out at patreon.com slash the Bible for normal people. If you aren't able to support the show financially, no problem. You can go to iTunes and rate and review the podcast. And that can go a long way to help others find us and join in the conversation. And we'd greatly appreciate it. One group in particular we would like to thank is our producers group who work hard to tell Pete and Jared where they're messing up and how to do it better. So thank you to Ryan Morrison, Martin Breithaupt, Joel Herring, Chuck Beam, and Joel Thompson. The Bible for Normal People couldn't happen without you. Now back to the podcast. 
So let me ask, uh, because you you mentioned the Sermon on the Mount. Mm -hmm. Is the Sermon on the Mount, is that apocalyptic? Is it revealing something? It's apocalyptic in the sense that it is concerned with the kingdom of God. Okay. And it's concerned with an ethic of the kingdom. Now, it's not, as some people have said, well, it's an eschatological or end times ethic. That is, you know, nobody could live this way in reality. It's about some future thing. You know, when I read it, I do not see any indication that uh, Jesus and or Matthew think that this is some pie in the sky you know, only after Jesus returns and establishes his kingdom kind of life. No, this is for right now, which, you know, brings in that whole now and not yet, the kingdom is here and not here and, and all that. Well, I was thinking too of the Beatitudes of, yeah. because I wasn't, I hadn't put these pieces together until you started talking about, and maybe I'm just wrong, but it seems like the Beatitudes are revealing you're never just the, wrong, the, Pete. I know. <laughs> I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm usually very wrong, not just wrong, but how the Beatitudes are revealing something about the true structure of the kingdom of God. Exactly. Maybe something like that. So it's like it's apocalypse. Uh, it's sort of like a real structuring principle, and I'm seeing that in ways I hadn't seen it before. That's pretty cool. Wow. Matthew's interesting. I have a question on that, though, because now I'm, I'm starting to conflict things in my head. So if, if kind of we're looking at the, the central piece of, of righteousness is this integrity and the unrighteousness is hypocrites. There's this kind of a value neutral thing of that. It's like saying, well, you can be a big jerk, but just have integrity about it. Like, don't don't pretend you're not being a big jerk. But then like the Sermon on the Mount seems to paint this picture of a more ethical framework to kind of say, you know, this is the life. And if you don't do that, then you are this uh, hypocrite. So I'm getting like, is there, what would be your sense on that? Is this, because I just think of in our culture today, it's kind of all the rage of like authenticity is what it's really about. It's like, yeah, you can be a, an a-hole, but as long as you're authentic about it, like that's okay. Which there's some truth to that. Why right? are you looking at me when and, you say that, Jared? That's what I want to I was, know. I mean, I, let's be honest. I was pointing at you, <laughs> but, but um, you know, so th- there's that. And I think there's some truth to that. But then there's also the Sermon on the Mount, which paints not just an ethical framework, but like you said, some people it's such a high standard that some people say we can't even can't even do that. So I'm just trying to juxtapose these two things. And I don't know if you had any comments about that. Well, one of the other things that trips people up about Matthew is that, and you know, New, New Testament scholars have noted this or said it, and I don't think glibly, that Matthew is really the most Jewish of the Gospels, by which New Testament scholars mean Matthew is obviously concerned with how does Jesus not just fit into the the ongoing story of God's work among the people of Israel and as the Messiah, but how does being a Christian, how does being a Jesus follower fit in with what Matthew sees as God's revealed will in the Torah. Mm-hmm. And so so there is so for example in in Matthew 5, you know, you have the part where Jesus says, you know, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you shall by no means enter the kingdom of God. And also, don't think that I've come to set aside the law and the gospel. I have not come to set that aside. I've come to fulfill it. And by the way, if anybody tries to do that, 
even the least little stroke of a pen, that person's going to be the least in the kingdom of God. But anybody who does the law and commandments, the law and the prophets, and teaches that, they will be the greatest in the kingdom. Well, you know, I don't know anybody, and I know there are people, but I don't know any Christians who follow the Torah. Mm-hmm. But Matthew definitely thought that Christians would do that. He thought that Christians would be Torah observant. Why? And this was, this was one of my big questions, right? I mean, having been, you know, nurtured and weaned on Pauline theology, you know, what do you do with that? Well, you know, if the Torah was actually given by God, Matthew cannot imagine a kingdom of God in which the Torah is not kept, right? I mean, yeah. if, if this is God's revealed will, then obviously the Torah will be kept in the kingdom of God. And keeping Torah, I'm just, I'm just riffing here, but I'm going to guess yeah. that's not, that's keeping Torah in the way the Jews were keeping Torah, which means yep. that involves debate. Yep. It involves thinking wisely about what sort of laws, what it means to live out a command in this day and age. It's, in other words, it's not a biblicistic, like inerrant literalism. It's more no. you're engaging this in a, in a lively way where you are in life, right? Which, to bring that back around to the Sermon on the Mount, is exactly what you see in the, the sections that um, Bible scholars call the antitheses where Jesus says, you have heard it said by men of old, X, Y, Z, but I say unto you, right? So he brings up something from the Torah, and then he does exactly what the rabbis did, which is say, okay, this is what it says in the Torah. Well, how do we understand that? Hmm. I'm going to come to you, and I'm going to say, this is how we best understand that. And so, yeah, absolutely. I think think you're you're totally on the right track with that. Okay, well this is I'm fire the things are firing in my head here and I hope I get these out but <laughs> I'm, I'm two things came to my mind. I don't know, they're connected in my head, but you're talking about this, I'm thinking okay, how does the genealogy at the beginning tie into this? And also talk a little bit about how Matthew likes to talk about hell <laughs> or 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 <laughs> Gehenna as it is Gehenna. I always tell my students the word hell is not in the Bible, the word Gehenna is there in Matthew. But Matthew uses it more than anybody. I mean, at most all the references, all but I think two, maybe there's a couple in Luke, but they're all – like Matthew likes that idea. And he's got this really boring but not at all boring genealogy at the beginning. And he's saying something like you're saying about the big picture. This is yeah. connected to the story. Right. And it's it's not a mis- – it is actually – yeah, it's – like you said, it's connected. So say help me understand those things more deeply because I need to look smart in school tomorrow. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> all right, fess up. You're teaching Matthew tomorrow, aren't you? This is all This is all a ruse. <laughs> all about me. All about me. All... <laughs> I think I'm a hypocrite when I say anyway. Yeah. Oh, geez. You know, the, the interesting thing is, uh, I think, comparing Matthew and Luke on the, on the topic of hell, yeah, Matthew's got a lot of Gehenna language, but only Luke has the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, from which we really get our hell picture, you know. I mean, that's the most developed one. And so, in contrast, Matthew is relatively within, he's within a much more Jewish framework where those who show themselves unrighteous to be not of God's people will face destruction. Which means what? Well, 
Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, is it is he talking about the destruction of Rome of of Jerusalem by the Romans? Is he talking about like a metaphorical destruction? Because he seems to be playing off of the stuff in Jeremiah where Gehenna is birthed in the Old Testament. I'm not trying yeah. to put words in your mouth. I'm just there's there's so much happening. I'm I'm asking really not for selfish reasons so much, but these are questions that I get too. You know, there's all this people are going to hell because they call somebody an idiot. Right. That's how that's how they read this stuff, and I'm saying I know that's wrong, but tell us how it's wrong. <laughs> um, it's it's wrong because what Jesus what Jesus is getting at in in that particular antithesis and in the others is again the question of of integrity, okay. right? So it's not just you keep yourself from outwardly doing all those things, right? Mm-hmm. But but your words reveal who you are inside. So yeah, maybe you don't murder somebody, but you have the kind of character that would like to murder somebody, and we can tell it by your words. Mm-hmm. Right? So- Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. But what does it mean that to, to like Gehenna is for you if you don't have integrity? What, what actually happens? What do you think that means? That's all I'm asking. I'm not trying to pin you down. Well, I am, but I'm not trying to. I'm not trying to pin you down to a particular solution. I'm just right. wondering. You've thought about this, and like, do you have a satisfactory solution in your own mind about something like that? Well, you know, when I teach this with my students, I I always, and and this is the. The downside of a podcast is I can't draw on the whiteboard right now. Well, you can. We just won't see it. So if it helps, go ahead. You are missing out on my stick figures. <laughs> and I just have to say they are awesome. They are the bomb. I draw bunnies on the board because that's really good. at illustr- Anyway, go ahead. <laughs> I really do draw bunnies. but Yeah, I have no doubt. But, you know, it seems like the difficulty is that the New Testament was written, compiled, uh, these stories are being circulated and and codified in a time where there's a whole bunch of different ideas about the afterlife, about what it's going to be like when the kingdom of God comes and everyone is judged. And so you get different pieces of different things. And so, yes, you are trying to pin me down and I'm going to try and be a little bit of a slippery fish here and say, you know what? I don't think that there is a real definitive picture of what that's like. Mm-hmm. I think the main point is it won't be good. <laughs> <laughs> it won't, <laughs> whatever you want, it's not going to be that. You know, the idea is that, at least as I understand it, when God's kingdom comes, the righteous will enter eternal life. And eternal life is the kingdom of God. And it's not up in heaven, right? It's not Mm -hmm. a disembodied spiritual life. It's going to be our resurrected bodies living eternally in a world where everything is the way God intended. And so to not participate in that, I think, 
is punishment enough? Yeah, so it makes me think of, you know, the there's a popular show, The Good Place, and it's sort of like just like that generic, you know, for, for Matthew, the good place is actually on, on Earth, like resurrected bodies, and then there's the bad place, and it doesn't really get more specific than that. He just uses like this placeholder of Gehenna to talk about that's the bad place, whatever it is. Whatever it is. And, you know, that gets developed into all kinds of imagery to, to express how bad it would be to be in that bad place. But yeah, my understanding is that for most Jews of that time, the idea of being excluded from that eternal life in yeah. the world the way God created that's as bad a punishment as you could ever be dealt. Yeah, I mean, if you're outside of the city gates, you know, if, if, to use the Jeremiah imagery, it's like, it's very symbolic of your, you're not part of this. You're out there someplace, which is a symbol of judgment, you know, during the Babylonian stuff in the Old Testament. So it's, that makes sense to me. Yeah, that's, that's a very interesting way of putting those pieces together. Uh, how about the genealogy? You want to say anything about that? Um, you know, I think... I mean, there's there's been some interesting things done on the women in the genealogy and how all of them have questionable uh, <laughs> resumes, shall we say, mm -hmm. and that Matthew is kind of setting up right from the start that God is not going to work through simply these spotless saints, but that it, it actually comes through very regular folk who have lives that are complicated and messy. I think mostly that the thing that I find particularly interesting in the Matthew genealogy is in comparison to Luke's version, actually, yeah. because Matthew starts with Abraham and works down to Jesus. So Matthew has this sort of, Matthew wants to start out and right away and say, listen, this story I'm going to tell you is about a guy who is a descendant of Abraham, and I'm going to tick off all the ways this guy is a true Jew. Like mm -hmm. if you want to, if you, if you want to know if he's got the right credentials, I'm going to lay it out right here. Very first thing. For those of you who care about it, it's right here. Uh, it's like the credits at the beginning of a film. Like, who really wants credits at the beginning of the film? But some people do, right? You got to tell, like, like, why is this a credible film? Oh, because it's made by this guy, right? So I kind of think it's like that. We just want the movie to start, and Matthew's like, oh, no, this is the director and the producer and the executive producer, and it's starring this guy. You know, I, <laughs> we just want to scroll through that. No pun intended. Um, so I think I think that's really for Matthew. It's establishing Jesus' credibility within Judaism. Again, this is one of the reasons why scholars look at Matthew and say, well, he's obviously concerned about things that would have been of concern to Jews of his time. Whereas when you look at Luke... Luke starts with Jesus and works back through the, uh, a very similar, though not exactly the same, genealogy up to Abraham, but then keeps going yeah. all the way back to Adam. Because for Luke, Luke wants to portray Jesus in a much more universal sense, much more the universal Messiah for all people. He's not so concerned to establish Jesus' credibility within Judaism. So we, we've talked about a, a lot of things that are, are really fascinating, and I think we can come at those because you have the you have the tools to kind of uh, to filter through the book and find these themes. So my question would be, 
could, is there any tips or tricks or things that you could have our listeners look out for to say, hey, if you want to read the book of Matthew and have it be tied into these larger themes that you think Matthew's really trying to get at, what would be some reading strategies that you might be able to to tell people to say, hey, look out for when they say this or look out for these kind of things? It's interesting that you should bring that up because that actually ties into one of the things I wanted to talk about. <laughs> uh, this wasn't planned, folks, okay. which is, you know, when I started thinking about my dissertation topic, what I was really interested in was this sort of question of righteousness versus sin. And so... I, I started looking at, you know, if people are going to get judged for this lack of integrity, what is it that causes that, right? I think this is actually kind of getting back to, to something that we've been dancing around, actually, and that people are concerned about, like, if people don't have integrity, if people do bad things, why is that? You know, does Matthew have some sort of idea of original sin, or does he think that we all have free will and we just choose to do bad things? And so when I started delving into that question, one of the things that I discovered was, first of all, Matthew has no interest in talking straightforwardly about that question. Hmm. Uh, He's not going to sit down and give you doctrine on uh, why people do bad things. But what you discover is when Matthew talks about sin, the thing that you find is it's always metaphorical. Hmm. Uh, So, this was where my background as an old English major kicked in. I wanted to actually title my dissertation, and this got the kibosh from um, my committee, The Devil, Bad Genes, and the Flesh. Okay. (laughs) Um, Because uh, Matthew has all these different ways of talking about why people do bad things. Oh, and body parts. So he'll say, you know, if your hand causes you to stumble, that's our, that's the new modern translation. But really, that it means lead you into sin, right? If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Well, holy cow, you know, I have a body part that's literally going to cause me to go to hell, to get back to your question, Pete. Right. But this is one of those things where, well, no, your hand is a metaphor here, right? You've got, you know... Every Christian commentator from way back to the very first people in the early centuries of the church who commented on this said, now y'all don't go cutting your hands off. That's not what Jesus meant. The hand is not the problem. This is a metaphor. I think for a reading strategy, when we start looking at this and we start realizing a lot of things are symbolic. And a lot of things are metaphorical. And so you've got people called a brood of vipers. Well, what does that mean? What does it mean to be genetically bad, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. a brood of vipers, I mean, a viper isn't going to give birth to something other than a viper, right? Maybe some people just are bad. They got bad genes. Maybe. Mm -hmm. I mean, that, that shows up all over the place. I mean, the sheep mm-hmm. and the goats, right? The they're just there, the, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the sheep and the goats are sheep and goats because they're sheep and goats, right? Yes. The things that they do have don't make them sheep and goats. They just show that they're sheep and goats, right? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, if it seems like it, it doesn't seem that interested in answering the question no. of, you know, what is in and where does it come from? If it is about this revelation of revealing what's always been there, yeah. um, that's more of the important impulse here. Yeah. <laughs> um, although, you know, he does talk about putting stumbling blocks 
in front of people and woe to them who cause people to stumble Mm -hmm. into sin. And so there are also apparently people who can choose to sin and to cause people to sin. And so there's this whole spectrum actually um, from what seems like basically straight up free will to something like original sin where you are just born bad and there's nothing you can do about it. And then there's also a devil. So, (laughs) but that was, that was a, a, really helpful for me to recognize that what we want to get out of these Gospels is often one clear-cut, nicely packaged, doctrinal answer about why do people sin. And anytime you start messing with metaphors, you've got all kinds of ambiguity and tension, and the heart of every metaphor is a yes and a no. So, Every time Matthew talks about why people sin and uses a metaphor, there's a kind of yes and no there. So I think when you read the Gospel of Matthew, the thing you got, the reading strategy is to look for how Matthew sees the kingdom of God coming and that that's good news as long as you're a Jesus follower and you do it with integrity and that the messages that we have there are all in images, they're all in metaphors, and we have to be comfortable with a little bit of ambiguity on that because that's how stories work, that's how language works, and that provides the richness, actually. Ultimately, my interest is how does Matthew understand Jesus to be the Savior? How does Jesus save us, and what does he save us from? And I think the answer is everything. All those ways, all those ways that we are led to sin, whether it's our own choice, whether it's something that wells up from within us, whether it's a part of ourselves that looks like a body part that we'd like to repudiate, you know, Mm-hmm. Jesus is the savior for all those ways. Yeah. Well, that's a, a perfect place for us. Unfortunately, we're coming to the end of our time. But before we go, is there anything you're working on, a project or uh, a place that people can find you online or, or interact with you to, to ask you questions? Or, or, or just your home address. Yeah, yeah. And, and your social security number, if you wouldn't mind. <laughs> um, do you want the security code off the back of my credit card? Would you? Yeah. Yeah. yeah I'll just post that. I'll post a picture. Um, you know, I'm... Not very media present. I don't have an Instagram. I don't do Twitter. I have a blog that I haven't posted on for ages, but you could probably discover it if you poked around, I guess. I am on Facebook, and I'm on Facebook quite a bit. I mean, fairly fairly heavily. So um, A little too much, if you ask me. Yeah, I know, right. Yeah. Yeah. You complained last time I took a hiatus, so (laughs) I remember vividly. You were accusatory. Where have you been? I was judgmental. I know. I'm sorry. You were. You were. That's all right. God noticed. Yes. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) Uh So, yeah, you can find me on Facebook. That's my pretty much my only social media outlet. I do have a couple projects coming up. The book version of my dissertation. So if you are interested in that whole sin, metaphor, all that mess, that's coming out with Brill. Should be out by the fall. I need to finish up some revisions on that manuscript and send it off, but that should be coming out. 
I've got a couple little articles coming up. Nothing that would probably um, interest normal people, assuming there are still normal people listening to this. <laughs> yeah. I, I just, I, you know, I've never been on anything that was targeted to normal people. So I'm sort of not sure even what that means, but <laughs> I, I don't know what it means to be involved with normal people. I, I don't think Pete does either, but that's okay. I fake it. Yeah, I know. Right. And, but the, but the most normal people thing I have coming out is a short book with Whipfenstock in their Cascade Companions series which is going to be called Reading Matthew. Oh, great. That'll probably be coming out uh, in about a year, I think. Good. And that's kind of like a, one of those very short introductions. It should be, it's a small book targeted toward uh, smart lay people, just like the sort of folks who listen to your podcast. But that, that'll pull together a lot of the things we've talked about today, but in a, in a more concise and digestible form. Excellent. Well, thank you so much. And uh, it's been been a pleasure for sure. It's been my pleasure. It's Thanks, great Judy. to talk to you guys. Yeah, very informative. Great stuff. Glad you came on. Thank you. I'm All right, glad Judy. You. Take care. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thanks, everyone, for uh, listening to that episode of The Bible for Normal People. If you want to keep the conversation going, you can find us at thebiblefornormalpeople.com. We have all sorts of uh, blogs up there as well as... Is there other things they can do on the website? They can buy stuff. They, you can buy, buy stuff. Buy merchandise. But That's right. No, you, know, like, you can connect with the podcast there. Well, I was thinking, know that already. Yeah, you can go to patreon.com as well, front slash the Bible for normal people. There's a lot more community happening there. That's right. Uh, so you can join the Slack group and, and have conversations about the Bible morning, noon, and night, anytime you want. That's right. Yeah. I mean, maybe people might not talk back to you at <laughs> two in the morning, but you can say whatever you want. So, uh, so check that out as well, patreon.com front slash the Bible for normal people, and we'll just keep the conversation going going. All right, folks. Thanks for listening. Hey, everybody. Welcome to this episode of our podcast. And the topic today is the Gospel of Matthew. I can't read my own writing. (laughs) (laughs) On integrity. I'm going to start over again, Dave. No, no, I'm not. I'm going to make you edit this. The first part was... No, I'll do it again.